We're continuing our series this morning through the book of Esther, a series entitled The Presence of God in His Absence. Last week, we asked the question, where is God? As we read the book of Esther, we find no mention of His name, no reference to Him, no times of prayer. There is a a striking absence of God from the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible that does not mention or reference God. And we asked, where is God? And we found him working behind the scenes, knowing that when God is silent, that doesn't mean he's absent. This morning, we're going to continue our series, reading Esther chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 17. Now, I want to thank Sarah Pine for reading that passage for us this morning. With that fresh in our minds, we're going to ask the question, where are God's people? If God is moving, who is he moving in the midst of? As we study this passage together, I think it's important for us to have a a brief review about the book of Esther. If you remember us talking last week, the people of God, the Jewish people, have been in exile And many of them have been allowed to return home, but Mordecai and Esther, along with a great deal many other Jews, are still in exile and unable or unwilling to return home. We found last week that Esther has a rags-to-riches story. She was an orphan, both of her parents passing. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. He raised her as his own daughter. But then she was taken as a part of the king's harem. Although she she experienced a great deal of trauma and tragedy, God worked behind the scenes to elevate her and raise her, and she won the favor of King Ahasuerus and became the queen of Persia. God is moving behind the scenes, but this week we learn that he's not alone. I want to be very clear. God alone works His will. But His desire is not to do it on His own. Not because He can't, but because He willingly uses people to accomplish His purpose. And so in these next few chapters that we've read, we see a few heroes of the story emerge. And a few villains as well. We've read... Esther chapter 2, verse 18 through 4, 17. So let me just do a brief summary to catch us up on what's happening in these verses. Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus and reports it to Esther the queen. She then tells the king they do some investigation and realize that these men were trying to assassinate him. They are executed and And Mordecai has now saved the king. This is not an unimportant part of the story. I I realize in chapter 2 we read it and then some time passes and we immediately forget about it. But hold on to this heroic moment for Mordecai. Next week especially, we're going to see how God uses his faithfulness to save the king. So after some time has passed, we, we don't know how much time has passed. King Ahasuerus promotes a new man to be second in charge of Persia. This man is Haman, Haman the Agagite. As Haman rises to power, we recognize he is not Persian, he's an Agagite. 
This is, this is different and unique because the king is promoting a foreigner. Now you ask, what is an Agagite exactly? Well, an Agagite was a descendant of the people of Canaan, the Canaanites. And if you read all through the Old Testament, you see a constant battle between the people of Israel and the Canaanite people. They are, they're enemies. There's hatred between the two groups already. And so here we have this man, Haman, promoted a descendant of the Canaanites, a, a passed on trait to dislike the Jewish people, enemies of the Jewish people for centuries, and he is promoted to second in command of all of the Persian Empire. There's an edict that goes out that everyone must bow down to Haman, but Mordecai refuses. Now notice the text didn't tell us why he refused. It didn't say because of religious grounds. It didn't say because he was a Canaanite. It didn't say because he was a prideful person. It just acknowledges that he didn't bow. I'd like to believe that Mordecai's Jewish faith, his belief in the one true God, would not let him bow down before a human being. However, it may have been his hatred of the Agagites. All that considered, Haman is extremely furious when Mordecai, of all people, refuses to bow, but he doesn't want to punish him directly. Notice Haman doesn't want personal responsibility. So instead of targeting Mordecai, knowing that that, that would look a little suspicious, he targets the entire Jewish race. And he orders all the Jews to be slaughtered in 11 months. He picks a date by casting her, that is, dice or, or lots. That's another detail not to be missed. That will come back in our fourth week of this series, this casting of Pur. And so as they're, they're plotting and planning the death of the Jewish people, an edict goes out, not just from Haman, but with the king's signet ring approval, making it binding law and unable to be reversed. So 11 months from the date that was set, all of the Jewish people are to be slaughtered. An edict that cannot be reversed. Mordecai hears this news and he mourns. It says he puts on sackcloth and covers himself with ashes. This is a a sign, a biblical sign of mourning and sadness and grief and despair and helplessness. And so now, because he's in sackcloth and mourning, that the law says he cannot go into the king's court, he stands outside of the gate of the castle, and he mourns and he weeps. And he asks Esther, through servants, to go and approach the king and ask for help. The major problem with this plan, and Esther knows and relays, is that going to the king without being called immediately results in death unless the king happens to find favor and extend his golden scepter. And so Esther is rightfully nervous to go and approach the king without being called, knowing that it is most likely certain death. Mordecai encourages her to try anyways. He begs and pleads with her with some heroic words. And Esther hearing Mordecai's plea, responds and asks that Jewish people everywhere fast for her and agrees to approach the king. Her heroic words in chapter 4, verse 16 are this, If I perish, I perish. 
you can see this exciting story unfolding from, from the orphan widow, the, the orphan child raised by her cousin, taken into the king's harem, made queen over all of Persia, only to find that her people are to be executed in little less than a year. And now she has to risk her life to go and speak to the king and plead and beg for him to intervene and do something. I told you this was a Hollywood story. All the twists and the turns, and we can see God moving and putting people in place in every single moment. There's really two main truths I want us to cling to as we ask the question, where are God's people this morning? Two main truths that I invite you to to jot down in your notes, write in your bulletin. Two main truths that teach us about the people of God working the will of God. The first is this. God does not need any person to accomplish his will. God does not need any person to accomplish his will. The truth is that that God often uses people to accomplish things in his will. We see it all throughout scripture. It's a beautiful picture of God's involvement in creation. All the way back in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, we see God using a man named Noah to build an ark and to save not only the human race, but all of the land animals that God has created. God uses Noah and his faithfulness. In Exodus chapter 14, we see God using Moses as the people of Israel are trapped between the the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. God sends a cloud between the Egyptian army and the Israelites. And then Moses raises his staff and God parts the Red Sea. God uses Moses to lead the people to safety. 1 Samuel 17, God uses a a young shepherd boy named David to defeat a giant named Goliath, saving the Israelites from the Philistine people, a Canaanite people, saving them from, from certain destruction. God uses David. You can read story after story in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, as he uses the disciples, as he uses Paul. You can continue to read how God's desire is to use prophets and people and common individuals. He uses men and women, sometimes children, to accomplish his purposes. God loves to use people. But it's really important that we understand this truth. God does not need any person to accomplish his will. God can do any of those things on his own. We see this displayed maybe most famously in the very first chapter of the Bible. When in the beginning, God himself, apart from any other act of creation, God creates everything. The heavens, the earth, and over the course of six days, he fills everything in it. Not by the help of human hands. Not by incorporating a a part of creation. Instead, God himself does all of the work. Maybe the most powerful display of God working apart from any human interaction is when God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This was God working apart from any human being. He he didn't have the disciples come and and march around the tomb. 
He, he didn't have some of the women come uh, for the purpose of his raising. Instead, God raises Christ apart from any human interaction. God himself does the work. God can supernaturally intervene without human intervention. As a matter of fact, I think it's safe to say that every time God moves, it is in his own strength and in his own power. God never moves in the strength of man. Even when he uses you and I, it's God's work, God's will, God's strength. And that leads us to this beautiful truth. I want you to think on this for just a moment. God doesn't need you, but God desires you. Let that sink in for for just a moment. God doesn't need you. He wants you. His desire is to use you. His desire is to have a relationship with you. God can exist content and perfect for all of eternity without any human beings or other created thing. And yet his heart's desire is to use his creation, namely those he created in his image. God wants to use you. We read about this in Esther 4, chapter 14. We see how God's power is beyond human interaction. In Esther 4, chapter 4, uh, 4, verse 14, it says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai, in his faith, is telling Esther, God can overcome this edict. God will overcome this edict. God doesn't need you to overcome this edict. If you don't act, God will work in another way. This is humbling and important for us to realize that God desires to use us, but it's not our own strength that accomplishes His will. I have a lot of pride often in in, in my thinking of how God may use me. I I love when the church is flourishing and growing. I love that in 2020, up until the middle of March, we were growing numerically. We've had several new families join our church this year. We're so thankful for how God is working in the people of First Baptist Church. I loved seeing new ministries spring up. I'm excited about the growth of our children's department and our youth department. And it's really easy for me to go, man, God has really used me to do a great thing at First Baptist Church. Can I tell you this morning, God has done that work without any help from me. God has done that work without any help from you. He's used many of you, and I thank those of you who are are teaching our children and our youth. He's put a calling on your life, and I'm thankful that you have been faithful to respond and join First Baptist Church. He certainly has used many of you in many ways, but unless we think, unless we believe that God is in control of all things, that God is the one working and moving, we are in sin, and in pride. God has not grown our church because of a work that you did or I did. God will accomplish His will apart from any human interaction. There is nothing about God's will that is dependent on man. God is not sitting in heaven 
wondering when you're finally going to do your part so he can do his. God's will is perfect. God's will is always accomplished. And while God wants to use you to do it, he doesn't need you. So set aside your pride. Set aside your your big head. Embrace the humility that God is in control. And when you do, can I tell you, there is such great comfort in that. Knowing that God is always in control brings me comfort. If it was dependent on me to work God's will, I know God's will would fail. The fact that it is not dependent on me gives me comfort because God is in control. It gives me comfort because it it reminds me that God cares enough to involve us in ministry. Think about that. If God needed you, When the need was over, he could cast you aside. The fact that God sticks with you even though he doesn't need you should bring comfort and peace and encouragement. It reminds us of God's great love because he doesn't need us and yet he desires us. So God doesn't need any person to accomplish his will. But the second truth I think is important for us to understand is that God has prepared you for obedience. God has prepared you for obedience. He wants to use you. There is a specific plan that he has in mind for your life. There is something specific that God has prepared your whole life so that you can be ready when the time comes. I love the rest of verse 14 in Esther chapter 4. Mordecai says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. But you and your family's house will perish. And listen to this last phrase. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai looks at Esther and says, God is moving behind the scenes and he wants to use you to go speak to the king. If you won't speak to the king, God will raise up someone else. But what if God has prepared you your entire life for the moment of you approaching King Ahasuerus? What if the reason why your parents died and you were an orphan was so that you would be in my house in Susa, raised by me, so that you would be called before the king in his harem. And as tragic as that is, what if God used all of that to raise you up, Esther, to be the queen for the specific purpose of this edict being displayed and you going and begging for the king's mercy? What if every circumstance in your life has brought you to this moment right here? I tell you, you are not an accident. Where you are in life is not an accident. The circumstances that surround you are not an accident. Your suffering, your loss, your grief, your triumph, your education, your upbringing, your relationships, your mountains, your valleys, your weaknesses, your strengths, your circumstances. God uses all of it to prepare you for what he's calling you to do. If God is truly in control of all things, he has certainly prepared you for his will. It doesn't mean it will be easy. 
That doesn't mean because you're prepared, it's going to be a cakewalk. No, remember Esther's words in verse 16. She said, I'll be obedient, and if I perish, I perish. God may have prepared you for an extremely difficult circumstance. God may be calling you to something that seems impossible. And and while I hope it's not the case, God may call you, like He calls Esther, to possible death in obedience. What has God prepared you for? As we sit here this morning watching this live, God has put us in a circumstance of pandemic. Maybe God has prepared your entire life for how you'll be used during the coronavirus pandemic. What does God prepare you for within your family? What is God calling you to with your wife and your children? What does God prepare you for in evangelism and sharing your faith? How has God used stories and suffering in your life to get you ready to share the gospel with someone else? What does God prepare you for in service? What does He want you to do to build up the kingdom and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ to love the created world that God has made? What has God put in your life to prepare you for this moment? We've recently watched the Disney movie Onward. As we've watched the movie, it was a great story of two brothers who are trying to bring their dad back for one day as he's, he's passed. And, and the younger brother, Ian, is, is so insecure about things, and we see him trying to learn how to drive early in the movie. And in the middle of this, this crazy scene where they're running away from these, these fairies, um, Ian is stuck driving because his older brother can't drive, and he's trying to merge onto the highway, and he's failed at this so many times before. And he looks at his brother Barley, and he just yells, I'm not ready. And Barley yells back, you'll never be ready. Just do it. That resonated so much with me. You know how many times I look at God and I say, I'm not ready. I don't think that I'm prepared for this. God, you want me to do this, but, but I don't feel adequate. I'm not ready to follow what you're telling me to do. And I feel like God looks down and says, you're never going to feel ready. The difference between the movie and reality is that God has made you ready. You are prepared. Whether you feel adequate or not, God is in control. And who knows whether you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. What is God preparing you for? What is God calling you to do? Maybe right now as you sit and watch this in your living room, God has been preparing your heart to respond to Him. God has been preparing your heart to know Him in a way you've never known Him before. Maybe several steps along the way have planted seeds, and right now, God is working in your heart saying, I want you to follow me. Nothing big, nothing grand, nothing major at this moment. I just want you to turn away from the life you're living, and I want you to give your life to me. Maybe you don't feel ready. Maybe you have too many questions. Maybe you're uncertain of what the future may hold. Can we remember that God has prepared you for this moment right now?
just right where you're at, could you listen to what God's calling you to do? Knowing that, that it feels crazy and feels like it's taking you down a path you're not prepared for, but knowing that God has laid the path before you. Are you ready to put your faith and trust in Him? Turn from your life and follow Him in salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much that You're working behind the scenes. That You're moving and putting things in place. But as we read in Esther today, You're not only putting things in place, You're putting people in place. Lord, thank You for using Mordecai to speak to Esther. Thank you for using Esther to be faithful, even in the face of death. Lord, I pray this morning that you would make clear on our hearts what you're calling us to do. Lord, just because the world seems to have come to a stop in this pandemic doesn't mean you have come to a stop. You're moving and you're working. Lord, let us find where you're moving and working. Father, let us be faithful and obedient as your people to step up knowing you don't need us, but knowing your desire is to grow us and use us to accomplish your will. Father, if you're calling us to teach, let us teach. If you're calling us to invest in our family more, let us invest in our family more. As you call us to share the gospel, give us boldness and confidence to share the gospel. Lord, as you call us to follow your will, let us see that you've prepared us our entire lives for such a time as this. In your name we pray. Amen.